2: all right. Welcome to another episode of Tell Me This. It still isn't easy to remember, Brianne, that we are in season five. Like, I know. It doesn't, it doesn't roll off the tongue yet. Maybe it will when we hit season six. I don't know. Um, <laughs> so, as a reminder, um, I am one of your co hosts, Carrie Borkowski, here with my wonderful colleague, Brianne Roos. And this is a podcast all about belonging for folks who haven't been listening. And if you haven't, you should go back now. <laughs> and look for seasons one through four. We have been spending a lot of time talking about, exploring, and hearing all sorts of stories around belonging. As a recap, um, the podcast started several years ago in 2020, before the COVID pandemic, and I spoke generally about belonging, some of the research that Brian and I had done. In season two, Brian and I dove into belonging during a global pandemic. Then we looked into leadership and belonging in season three and had these amazing conversations with mostly, well, all female leaders, actually. And then last year, based on some um, data and in the interviews from the previous year, we decided it was time to look at belonging in relationships, your intimate relationships, your student relationships, your friends, your colleagues, all kinds. And then we find ourselves this season deep into belonging to self. So we are currently, Brianne and I, are in what we're what I described this morning as a messy and beautiful journey <laughs> of writing a book about belonging based on many of the seasons of our podcast. And Brianne and I have just had so much fun exploring ideas of boundaries, um, belonging, and a, uh, one of our guests talked about belonging and the difference between what she called absolute and contextual identity, and how, you know, the question that keeps coming up as facilitators and educators is how do we invite belonging and know that this will mean different levels of openness, vulnerability, and trust for different people in different groups? And what Brian and I were talking about this morning is we can try our best to see other people. We can try our best to really value and integrate the lived experiences of other people human beings in the work that we do in that space, but we can't control how the other people show up. Right? So so we want to have a conversation today about this idea of code switching. And as I vulnerably <laughs> mentioned to our our guests today, is I really, and I think it's because it's been in the ethos recently about being a bad thing. We talk about code switching as a have to, right? To survive in this uh, systemically racist um, culture of ours. And when Brianne and I started talking about it, Brianne is a speech language pathologist by training and also teaches other SL, I guess, soon to be SLPs. And she mentioned that code switching is actually something that is taught, right? And of course, like there are moments where code switching is something that might be necessary to show up in different spaces. And so we thought that it would be super fun to have a conversation about code switching. And so we've invited um, two lovely, um, I'm going to say women. I think they identify as women. It's, it's safe to say, yes, they're shaking their heads. Um, educators in Florida. Um, S. Swyhart has been on the podcast before, but new to the pod is Ms. Kimberly Rivers, um, who is a good friend and colleague of S's. And so we are, Brian and I are so excited to have both of you here today. So welcome, S and Kimberly. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Absolutely. And Brianna, it's always good to see you as well. Thanks, you too. <laughs> so we were hoping um, S and Kimberly, either one can go first. It doesn't matter. We would love for you to introduce yourselves to the audience. And in that introduction, if you wouldn't mind, if there's any part of your identity that you think is important to share that might be relevant to the conversation, it's always an invitation, never a requirement to to share what you feel is um, okay about. So S, you want to get us started? Sure. Um, S Swihart. I am an educator for the last 19
3: years. I work in the K through 12 space, but in the really nine through 12 space. Um, I'm a I teach English literature. I chair our English department. I'm a current doctoral candidate at Johns Hopkins. And um I, I'm a white cis heterosexual female who lives in the South. <laughs> and um and I'm a redhead. I mean, we were <laughs> we were having some conversation about being a redhead earlier. <laughs> um, and my family growing up is um on my mom's side, Jewish. So hmm. if that
2: informs
4: any of the conversation, I don't know, but that's there as well.
2: Great. Thank you. And
4: hello. Thank you all so much for inviting me. I'm standing somewhere with one foot in nerves and one foot in excitement. So <laughs> that's kind of where I'm living right now. Um, when I count all of the years that I've been working to educate people, I was actually just trying to do the math. And I've been educating human beings in some form since about 2005. So I don't know how many years it is a lot, a lot of years. Um, <laughs> and I am currently studying educational leadership at Harvard at Huggsy, um, their graduate School of education. And kind of through that, I've become really interested in exploring the landscape of education and all of all of the ways that it shows up.
2: Mm -hmm. That sounds like a conversation I'd love to have another day. (laughs) Oh, it's enthralling. Yeah, I bet. (laughs) Just making some notes. And I appreciate you sharing the nerves and excitement because I think Brianne and I were feeling that too, right? Just with an unknown. So it's, it's all good. It's all welcome. <laughs> it's
4: also probably important to note that I am a cishet black woman living mm-hmm. in the
2: South, but raised
4: by uh, phenomenal parents who were from the Midwest and uh, Kansas city. What is that? The central, central United States. So they, um, they had really interesting and diverse uh, experiences with race and so I think mine is a little a little interesting as well mm-hmm. yeah
2: awesome thank you for that
4: great so
5: we always like to start our podcast just with a check-in and Kimberly just gave us a nice like segue into that which is one foot of nerves and one foot in excitement and um, <laughs> same I think I feel that way every single time we hit record <laughs> so um beyond that just a, an opportunity to just check in and ask how you both are doing what's it uh, one of our guests suggest the question what is alive for you in this moment so if that resonates with you what's alive or how you doing just how are things
3: yes (laughs) I am um, I'm feeling I think really I'm having a. what's alive for me is I'm feeling a lot of gratitude for this gathering I think I'm the one who knows everybody in the room so that's always the best experience because I know (laughs) how amazing everyone is and um, this is a really nice check-in with the community that the world needs. So I'm really grateful to be in it right now.
4: Yeah, that's solid. Um, I am becoming more and more aware of how much I need community And so when you said that, that we were just talking, we just left lunch together. So we were just talking about um, how important community is and how precious it is when members (laughs) of community show up in ways that only they can. So I'm also feeling grateful, centered
2: around the idea of community. Mm. Mm. Brianne, I'm going to ask you, since we are, I forgot to mention to the audience that unlike typical episodes, we're going to try to participate in the conversation versus just doing the interview. So, what's alive for you today, Brienne?
5: I know you love Ooh. that question, so. Yeah, I think I'm I'm more of a how's it going kind of girl. Yeah, but know what's alive for me? <laughs> <laughs> what's alive for me I think is really a lot of gratitude. We had a phenomenal weekend. There was a lot of stress. I have a high school daughter. There were all sorts of things going on with her and it ended up working out great. She had a wonderful time at all the events. We had all four grandparents in town which, you know, um, ended up being a lot of fun so just a lot of gratitude for the way that things that things worked and for being here together with you all
2: today mm-hmm. yeah what
5: awesome. about you Carrie?
2: um i think i am feeling gratitude as well i had some coaching this morning um a dear friend is trying out some new work around um dei and using some tools to sort of coach around and so we coached around anti-racism this morning for for me and i was Admitting that there is some nervousness for me around that word just because I'm still doing my work. I'm fine with admitting that. But I think that word anti-racism is triggering for some people. And so that makes me nervous. And so I think it's interesting that we're having a conversation about code switching, because while code switching isn't really as as full of emotion as maybe anti-racism is, it's, it's a little nerve wracking as a white gay woman, I'm sure I'm going to make mistakes. Um, and I'm going to do my best and know that I'm still on this journey and doing my work. So that's sort of how I'm showing up today. Just looking forward to feedback and grace. (laughs) So we
5: can do that. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. So we love to talk about definitions, because we talk about constructs that are not necessarily concrete. Um, and so when we get into this conversation, we talk so much about belonging, right? And today, we're kind of centering around code switching. So we felt like it would be a good place to start to just ask what code switching means to probably to the four of us, actually, not not just um, the two of you, as as we typically would. So, Kimberly, or, or S, would one of you want to start with what
4: code switching means to you? Um, I'll go. Code switching for me is an awareness that another language exists and then actively working to be translating between your common language, whatever that is, and the other languages that exist in the world. Mm -hmm. And by language, I mean way of being and communicating, not necessarily just words. Well, that was...
3: That's a great definition. I don't want to follow it <laughs>
4: <laughs> I'm Add on, I
3: guess. Um, I think for me, I think about code shifting as also a, um, a response to how you're expected to be in certain situations. And mm-hmm. so um, a shifting of the self, maybe the authentic self, even in an effort to be accepted by a group
2: or safe, I guess.
5: I'm taking notes.
2: Sorry. Yeah, me too. Um, that's that's sort of how, how we roll. So yeah. I would say, um, I mean, I think you, you both beautifully captured probably a good definition of code switching. I would say my definition of code switching might be reactionary in some ways, which is it's a word that I worry when someone is feeling like they have to do that because then I'm worried that they're covering in some way that they're protecting in some way, that they're getting some sort of signal, maybe from that ex, that other language that Kimberly mentioned, that what they have to bring may not fit in that mold that that space requires. And I know there's positives to this, but that's, that's how I come to the table around code switching.
5: Okay. Um, and I can share what I learned about code switching which was long before I learned about it from um, kind of a racial reckoning sort of standpoint, which was, I don't know, in the 90s when I learned about it as an undergraduate student. Um, I learned about code switching as something that we all do. We shift our language based on the audience that we're sitting with. So it could be vocabulary. It could be syntax. um, It could be pragmatics. So the way you're showing up, you know, your, your social use of language and the example that i typically give my students is that you talk to your grandmother differently than you talk to your college roommate, differently than you talk to your best friend and your parents. And part of that is is accepted and normal, and if if you're not able to do that, it actually can suggest disordered language in some in some way. So um that's what I that's like my my frame of code switching. That was what I learned about it, which is that it's it's actually kind of an essential part of typical language development. And when it's absent, it's very clear. Um and you may not be able to say put your finger on it, but you know something's off with that exchange. So that's kind of what what I'm arriving to the conversation with. Of course, I learned a lot more since then, but that's how I would define it and think about it. Yeah. I love that yeah um and then the other term i think for us to just think about since this is a podcast all about belonging and we think there's a connection between code switching and belonging that we can learn about more today is how would you how do you all conceptualize your define belonging like what does that mean
3: to you guys um well belonging i think um I think of belonging as having to first belong to the self. I think of that mm-hmm. as a precursor in many ways. Though I think there is a reciprocity. Sometimes I think when you feel like you belong to a group, you can it can aid in the the finding of that self belonging. But certainly, when you work from that that place of self belonging, it is easier to to find true belonging in other places, or to be okay when there is a lack of it. I guess, or to make sense of it. But I, I think of belonging as being able to show up in full authenticity with who you are.
4: Um, that would that'd probably be my my baseline. Yeah, and and uh to parrot, s, yes, I do not like having to go after her. Um, <laughs> we'll try to mix it up next time. I mean, I agree wholeheartedly. Um, the idea of belonging for me is that however I am, I can show up as that. Mm. Uh, so then there's the reciprocity in that when i show up however i am to a space it is as if my whatever
2: shaped puzzle piece fits in the puzzle mm. i love that i do mm. too and there's going to be some pauses because i think we're all taking in what each other yeah. is saying and that's <laughs> that's okay even though it's a podcast yeah. <laughs> we like thoughtful pauses I didn't know if you wanted me to go, Brianne, or if you wanted to go. Uh, you can go.
5: I'm thinking about the puzzle. You go ahead. Yeah,
2: <laughs> I'm thinking about the puzzle, too. Um, I mean, I think you, you both said how how I feel about belonging, too, right? It's it's really being able to show up and be my whole self, right? And I don't think it's any more than that. Being Feeling seen and, you know if, if, if I was going to bring some literature and I can't remember the person who wrote it, but this idea, whole idea of feeling seen and feeling like I matter, right. That I matter in a space. And I think that's related to Kimberly's puzzle piece, right. That, that the space find, it, it finds a place for the talents that I bring, not that I'm changing myself to fit into what they need. It's they find a place for what I have, right. That's mattering. So. Yeah.
5: I like the mattering piece too. Um, because it aligns. I was thinking about, um, showing up authentically so sort of what you all have said and that um you feel valued right and i'm thinking back to a guest who said she was referring to her student coming back from being absent and she said oh welcome back we're whole when you are here Hmm. and that kind of makes me think of the puzzle you know like you need that piece actually yeah um, to fit so
3: i'm gonna steal that i think Mm -hmm. yeah
2: yeah
5: Yeah. Credit Katie Boucher, the accord school.
2: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. She works with, she's a brilliant educator who works with middle schoolers. Um, So, so I think, you know, Brianne asked for definitions of belonging and, you know, this is a podcast of belonging and that's the research we, we do. So we can't help but sit here with a question that is, you know, what's the relationship between code switching and belonging, right? And I, and I think I'll follow that up with sort of something that I started to talk about earlier, which is if we're showing up as our whole selves, if we're showing up authentically, if we are being seen for who we are, where does code switching, right? Like where does code switching fit in? And I don't even know how to ask it, but I see some head shaking, which is like, when is code switching feel? Resonant, right? So that you're able to code switch and be your authentic self. And when is code switching a barrier to being your authentic self? I guess is, is how I'll put it. So um I'm gonna go to S and then Brianne's gonna go. So Kimberly doesn't feel oh. like she has to follow S. So we're gonna go S Brianne Kimberly today. <laughs>
3: Well, I would I think about um maybe those differences and and feelings of code shifting that has to do with some of the spaces that Brianne mentioned, right? If I'm if I'm talking with close friends versus if I'm talking with a grandmother, right? Or um even if I'm, you know, obviously as a teacher, I'm gonna I'm going to talk to my students in a very different way. I'm not their peer, right? So then I might with a peer of mine. So all of that to me feels um it feels like I can show up as myself in different landscapes if if the situation is right. I think of code shifting as getting very problematic as soon as there is an expectation that I be, or anybody is, other than they are to fit a power dynamic or a, you know a dominant cultural paradigm or oh my gosh, there's just so many different places right where we're expected to be other than we are so that we can fit somebody else's idea of how the world should work. And I think that starts, that's when it starts to get particularly dangerous Mm
2: -hmm.
3: to jump off, but yeah. Yeah. That was beautifully said. I think
5: it's the, the authenticity is the word that keeps coming to me. Um, So I hope that you're speaking to your students differently than, you know, (laughs) your, your friend, Kimberly here and your grandmother. So, because that's, that's appropriate. What I think I'm hearing from you, um, S, and what we've heard from some other guests, is that when you leave that space of authenticity around who you really are, so like you're not bringing all of yourself to every interaction, there are very few people in your world where that happens. And that's a very special thing when that when it does. Um, That's okay, I think. And that's, that's to be expected. And we think about boundaries and sort of guardrails, maybe around that sometimes. Um, But when you're, Veering out of that authenticity when you're trying to be someone you're not for whatever reason, whether that's your perception of that's what's required in that space, whether you've been told that's what's required in that space, that's when the rub um, hits for me.
4: Oh, this is so great. So for me, in particular spaces, I feel sometimes invited to code switch. And when I'm in a space where a person is trying to understand, then I can almost serve as a translator, as a peek into a window into a different experience. And that's when it feels actually really good. We actually do this quite often, um, where I can explain a situation because I have had to be fluent as we all are in many different languages, if I'm gonna go with that idea. And then I it can serve as an opportunity, a window in, a door even into another experience when a person can hold and understand and speak and have an experience in in both languages. So when I'm with my very best girlfriends, who are all black cishat women, And I'm talking about my experience as a teacher and they are interested. There are things I have to shift in the way that I communicate about my experience, attempting to get kids to want to talk to me about Hamlet. So in order for me, for them, and they want to fully engage with me and to to share with me in that experience, there's language and paradigms that I have to code switch to explain and invite them in. So I enjoy it when it's like an invitation.
2: So I'm going to be honest with the audience. S and Brianne are shaking their heads in the affirmative as Kimberly. And I want to be shaking my head in the affirmative and I'm still still not sure. So for folks who are listening who still don't know, I'm going to be the one who asks the question so you can thank me later. So I need, you started to give the example, Kimberly, which I love, I needed an example. I need Mm -hmm. a little bit more on the example. So can you give like, because I got lost. So can you give me a more specific invitation to code switch and what that looks like? Or Can you do that, would you you mind?
4: Yes, Um, okay, so just earlier today, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about S's experience as a redhead. So that is a really specific way of existing in the world that as a black woman, I don't have any frame of reference for it at all, Mm -hmm. like whatsoever, I said to her today, it wasn't until I was an adult that I even realized that there was a thing about being a redhead. I thought it was great. I think red hair looks great. I don't even realize it's a thing. Um, and so I explained we, that conversation grew um, because she was open and she shared what that experience was. She talked about the language, the interactions that she had with people that are really specific to her experience as being a redhead. Mm-hmm. There were some spaces where I could say, oh yeah, That happens similarly in the African-American community. Here's what that looks like. Mm -hmm. A Black person will say, oh, you sure are pretty for a dark baby. Or like, look at the baby's fingernails and talk about how they're going to eventually be dark. And she had absolutely no idea. But that space where we shared that commonality, she could shift mm-hmm. and be a redhead in the moment and talk about all of the absurdities and obscenities that she experiences with really clear language that only exists in the experience of being red- a redhead, which mm-hmm. I had no idea was a thing. Um, and then I could, I was invited into that experience with something sort of similar, but mm-hmm. completely different in my experience as an African-American person. So I s- use language that only Black people use with one another in that interaction. And so now she has a peek in to what that language, that system, that ideology, that paradigm is in the African-American community.
2: Mm, thank you for that. And so if we sort of loop it to the relationship between belonging and code switching. So I'm just going to reflect this back and you correct me. So it sounds like by being able to be in that space together, whether it's you and, and S or you and your your girlfriends, Being in that space together, perhaps you feel a sense of belonging. Yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Awesome. That's amazing. I love, and I love. It's funny that you went back to translation because I circled that because I think Mm -hmm. that feels like the key is is perhaps a willingness, an ability, time for translation. Right. That there has to be an acknowledgement that 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 these things. Don't always transfer to one person to another, right? Um, yeah, I, I love that. I mean, I think the relationship for me, and and I know Brand's going to ask this later about if if you feel like sharing an experience with code switching. We meant we keep mentioning grandparents and family as, you know, the example of code switching from there to coworkers to colleagues, and what what I'm struggling with is. Yes, it's okay, but sometimes the family and the grandparents is not the okay code switching, right? Because the code switching is having to align with even a family expectation. And so I just want to say out loud to be clear that like we need to acknowledge that it's not obvious to any human being. It's very contextual which places in your life code switching is going to feel resonant as belonging, and that's going to depend on your own circumstances, Um, so, and I think the other piece that I love and and I need to think more about it is the extent to which you are a good translator sort of unlocks your ability to feel a sense of belonging in multiple places, right? So how do my matter, how does my mattering and how does, do my talents translate in this space, right? And and whether or not the people in that space can see the translation as well. So I'm, I'm gonna have to think more about that translation piece, but I love giving me a lot to think about, Kimberly. So thank you for that. Yeah.
5: Well, you both just shared <clears throat> some examples, but I think, I think the learning is in the examples here, to be honest. I think it's super helpful to define terms, um, but they come to life with the examples. So I appreciate the uh, examples that you shared from earlier today. So anything else coming to mind about when you've experienced code switching to just really contextualize this? Like, what does this look like in your world? What made you say yes to the invitation to come today? Because you felt like you had something to, to share and contribute around this conversation.
4: Well, we jokingly, well, seriously slash jokingly talk about the fact that I came out as a black woman last year um, at work. Um, and so <laughs> it was, um, out of frustration and feelings of isolation with full transparency um to start showing up and purposefully not translate uh, to purposefully not code switch. Mm-hmm. Um, several things there are several things about working in a, in an all-white space, a predominantly white space that will make a person kind of exhausted. And uh, you hinted at it a minute ago when you talked about having the bandwidth for translating because mm-hmm. sometimes I do, I mean, I think all of us sometimes you do and sometimes you don't have the emotional energy um, or investment, actually. Um, you're not willing to make the investment to 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 code shift and then to translate. Um and so there are so many examples. Um, a big one is just about the way a, a as a black woman i show up physically um recently i shifted from wearing straighter hair to hair that is like more like a, a natural state for black women and the response from my coworkers is always really interesting not all of them some of them are more vocal than others um and i could take the time to invite them in and explain like this is why this is this way. This is, this is what that process is like. This is what a weekend is like in the life of an African American with natural hair texture. Um, I could do that, but it's not always worth the investment. Um, so instead, I just let them have the questions that they have and I I don't engage in that work. Um, so that's that's an example of when I just show up. And then just let things happen the way that they happen. And then there are times when I invite a person in to that experience. I show up as my authentic self and say, this is the experience. This is what it looks like. And then they respond however they do. But they have to feel either safe enough for me to do that or I have to not care about how they're going to respond.
1: Hmm.
0: In my work, I've collaborated directly with hundreds of educators to support their success. Do you know which of their edtech frustrations comes up time and again? The sheer number of tools out there and the difficulty of knowing which ones schools like theirs are using to get results. IXL is different. Not only does it perform the functions of dozens of tools, It's currently delivering results for one in four U.S. students, including those in 95 of the top 100 districts. Another major pain point that comes up when a school is excited to implement a new tool, only to find out the teachers hate it. Yikes. It helps to know that IXL is loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, saving them time on prep work while enabling them to better support student learning. IXL is research proven to accelerate achievement. Studies across 45 states show that IXL schools outperform non IXL schools on state assessments. And independent research from Johns Hopkins University verifies that IXL meets ESSA Tier 1 standards. With those results combined with IXL's teacher friendly reputation, what more could you ask for? If you have a goal to increase achievement for all students, Make sure to find out what IXL can do for you. Visit IXL.com forward slash BE for a demo. That's IXL.com forward slash BE.
2: That's a lot of work. Kimberly. Um, and it's incessant. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, I don't like, I am careful about using words like trauma because I know, but it feels like that's a just ongoing, continuous trauma that it just has to be exhausting yeah yeah
4: i i if i don't there have been times when i've changed my hair and if i don't explain then i get these uh Bizarro reactions to to it that wouldn't happen. If I show up in an African American space, I could have different hair tomorrow. I could have different hair this morning, and a whole another hairstyle this afternoon, and no one would even flinch because there's this language, there's this way of existing where it really is that simple. And because I know, have some familiarity with the process, I would say I know. I have some familiarity with the process. It isn't shocking. So I have to when i change my hair i change and if it's going to be drastic i make sure that i have the energy to explain mm-hmm. why how the whatever has happened has happened i need to decide with whom i'm going to share how much detail um and then i will frequently stop by s's classroom because she's is going to be a phenomenal phenomenal encourager and then i go out into the world that is you know our school so, um, it's the translating of the experience. And then she comes back with stories <laughs> from the wild. Oh gosh, yeah.
3: <laughs> stories from the wild. From the wild. That's so
5: yeah. Cool. Uh, <laughs> uh, I think clean. it takes, oh, I just, Kimberly, you said to be safe or not care, right? So like, those are the conditions. I think it takes energy to not care. I think- mm-hmm. You know to be safe is wonderful to be able to go to s's classroom or to have your you know people who are going to be kind and civil and you know the way they should be with you um but to not care i think that's like an active state that i just i think that adds to the energy that you're talking about
2: having to expend Yeah, yeah absolutely yeah so i will i will share and again i feel like i'm on a journey still learning all about this and I mentioned this to Brianne, so I'm, as I said, I, well, as audiences know, I'm a white gay woman. And so my whiteness is the observable, right? And so I acknowledge immediately and often that uh, that comes with a lot of power and privilege and no need to even think about code switching, right? Because I'm in the dominant culture. But then I'm also gay. And so what I've come to sort of process and realize, partly with Brianne and and just thinking myself, is I think I've been doing some kind of code switching for the entire time I was not out. So I went to school in North Carolina. And I used to joke seriously up until a couple of years ago that there was a carry in North Carolina and there was a carry in Maryland. And I think that's code switching. I think that knowing that you have to fit, you know, a certain, I'd, I'd cross the border into Maryland and I'm like, okay, I know how I have to show up. And when I got my first job and stayed in North Carolina and I worked at a very white, um, I don't know if there were any gay people, nobody was out for sure. I told Brianne and it's, it can, I can laugh at it now because I'm in a different place, but at the time I was very um, strategic about what pictures I put on my desk. And when, and Monday morning, when people were hanging out at the coffee area or water cooler and talking about their weekend, I was very clear about, I was with my friends. I was doing that, right? Like it could never be, I had a girlfriend. Um, so it's different, I think, but I think similarly, it's still, it's code switching and um, it is, it's exhausting, like trying to keep track of what you have said and what you haven't said, especially when you're trying to cover up a characteristic that's not evident. Right. So what strikes me is that the
3: story, those stories, right. The, the feeling while trying to not care as Kimberly stated, or to move through that process is just the way in which a dominant culture is in small, big, not meaning to meaning to it doesn't really matter the effect is the same unfortunately the impact is the same essentially just saying that inherent to who you are is not enoughness right or yeah. is not goodness and and that is what is just that and that's just what I mean it's so it's exhausting yes, but it's also just it's a double it feels like a double bind you know you can't win for losing right like either way you lose yeah um, in some way and that's
2: and that's why we have researchers like S who are doing stuff around self-worth, right? <laughs> the red hair. Yeah, yeah it's <laughs> It's the red hair. I mean, I also, I mean, I do want to say cuz again, I like to recognize my positionality like we're we're able to have this conversation because there is some power and privilege and you know, I was for the most part safe, like my security There were only a few times where I was in the deep South where I was nervous about being gay, but for the most part, unlike many people who live in this whole world who are not physically safe, I just want to acknowledge that, like, I'm grateful for the safety and security that that I feel and can have this open conversation with with the three of you as well. So I think that's important.
5: So, so helpful. So when... I'm hearing a lot of things. And one word that comes up for me a lot when we talk about um, belonging and today code switching is the idea of boundaries. So when we think about Brene Brown, like she loves authenticity. She's like, but don't share everything. Like you got to put guardrails up on that a little (laughs) bit. Um, And I think that's such an important thing to say because when we talk about ideas around inclusive teaching and really hearing from our students and honoring their voices and wanting to hear their voices and collaborating and all that, some faculty and and colleagues go immediately to like, oh, the oversharing, like, well, no, those are not the same thing. So um, do you think and we didn't explore this when when Carrie and I were talking about our questions this morning, we were kind of just like, what do you think? What is the role of boundaries? In code switching? Is there a role? Maybe it's not connected? I don't know. Curious what you think?
4: Wow. If thinking about code switching and boundaries so the first thing when you were talking the first thing that i was thinking about is people <laughs> people violate boundaries and really all the all the time um all, all the time so If I, if I choose to engage with a person about and show up authentically and in whatever sphere that is, we're at work now. So if I'm talking about thinking about being a black woman in a middle leadership position at a school, so we can talk about that. um, There are very few people at this place where I work and really in my professional experience that outwardly acknowledge that there are some things that are off limits. So like, since I was talking about hair earlier, there's really no circus fantasy land where you approach an adult in a space and comment out loud on their hair. So when you said that, I was like, people have boundaries, question mark. That, that, Mm. it it almost feels like people, interact as though they have access or should have access to whatever sphere that they about your life that they are interested in. So when you said that about boundaries, I was actually thinking the exact opposite, um, that people just trounce all over boundaries here. And then quite frequently, I don't have the option to share some aspect of myself or not. Well, the option is either I share and engage in the uncomfortable moment of really clear boundary violation when we talk about the ideas of how showing up in a space like a school, um, either I I do it or I, I don't like I opt out. And so that's the like, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, gonna not. So it's really interesting that you were talking, thinking about boundaries and, and code switching. I think there's
3: an interesting component of that that's, I think, and maybe it's just more predominant in our culture now. Maybe it's always been there. I can't tell what anything even is anymore. But um, there there is this space where people will, they will step over what I think would be an agreed upon social boundary, which is interesting because that could be connected to code shifting in and of itself, but there yeah. might be someone who has a lot of privilege and wherever that realm is in their world, and they, they step over a boundary, and then there's the exhaustive work of having to say, having to deal with the inappropriateness as though not only that, so you either have to engage in conflict or you have to engage in sort right. of boundary crossing or what could even be subtle forms of harassment or not so subtle mm-hmm. sometimes. Um, And I I don't think we talk about that sort of very uncomfortable space enough where somebody crosses a line, especially if it's socially, if it's at work, if it's in a social situation, somebody you don't know that well, could even be at home though, right? Like Mm -hmm. it could be someone in your own family that crosses that line. And now I either have to engage in conflict with you, which is exhausting and not my job really to teach you this very natural boundary, or I have to just allow the, you know, the slight um, I don't, that's just, that's part of what pops into my head. And I feel that I feel that in a number of spaces. I definitely feel that as a woman out in the world, it, both in the workplace, as well as, um, and it just, you know, in lines at banks, honestly, anywhere, could be anywhere Yeah, gas stations, wherever. So. Mm.
5: so this is fascinating. And I so appreciate your sharing this because what I'm hearing is like the privilege of boundary setting, which I had not thought about before this conversation, that as a white woman, I have more privilege to set those boundaries. And there are inherent boundaries, just because of who I am and how I present. Um, So thank you for for that. But it makes me more angry. (laughs) Um, As you talk about this, because I think about boundaries as a way to kind of stay a little bit safer. But what you're saying makes absolute sense, which is that's just not the case, because people disregard if there are boundaries they're disregarded and then you have to decide you sit with that violation and or do you find the energy and the bandwidth and all that to to speak up which is shouldn't have to have that
2: yeah it's this is a really interesting conversation because what i'm noticing because s early on the conversation you described belonging you said Initially, you said self, maybe I think you said precursor or sort of, you know, mm-hmm. before and but then you said, but there's a, a sort of reciprocity, right? That word reciprocity. And what I'm wondering as I listen to all of you is it feels like this notion of boundaries is unilateral and it never works out for the person who is the oppressed because it's either the dominant culture that is permitted and able to set boundaries And it is that same dominant culture that can bulldoze over those boundaries when they see fit. Um, And this happens. I mean, I've seen it and experienced it happening, you know, if we're talking about gender. Right. It happened. I've had it happen where I was told that, you know, this was an opportunity for me to teach him how to behave better. Right. So. I'm supposed to erect these boundaries for this person who doesn't know how to manage boundaries. So it's interesting that it's, we talk about belonging as being reciprocal. We talked about showing up as being a puzzle piece, right? A collaborative thing. And when we talk about boundaries in this circumstance, right? It's unilateral. It's just interesting. I just, as I was mm-hmm. listening to you, I have to think about that more so go ahead Kimberly no go ahead I've always wondered and S and I
4: talk about these things quite frequently so I've always wondered if so black people have to understand the language of like majority culture like we have to know the rules and all their forms um and more and more can engage in some spaces or or not engage um so that really grateful that 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 is shifting that's the thing that's the thing that is shifting but I wonder what if there are people from majority if white people realize are you is there any awareness of what the rules in blackness are like are is there is that a thing that gets discussed is that is that's not a thing you're shaking your head is that is that a thing um because like when I'm with Black people, there will almost always come up uh, like a white people thing. Like, this is a thing. Like, are you aware? And not necessarily in overt ways all the time, but there's a there's a really clear, like, you can go on TikTok. If you go on TikTok and, like, search white people stuff, there will be just playlist after playlist after playlist. You should do it. It's hilarious. Really? Um, Oh yeah, I was sharing it with them in lunch, in lunch. So there is this awareness in spaces that that are not necessarily like publicly available to majority culture, where this is like a common, common, commonly talked about. Like I know what gets eaten at a white people Thanksgiving. Do you know what gets eaten at a black people Thanksgiving? Mm. No, because that's not what we see in stories. Yeah. Yeah. So I have this active awareness of what Mm -hmm. that is. Just last year, we were, the kids do interviews. So what's going to be for Thanksgiving? And so I had to stop and explain, this is like that. Mm -hmm. Instead of mashed potatoes, there is this. Instead, (laughs) Instead of, so I just, I've always wondered.
2: Yeah, that's. I mean, I'm processing, right, more pauses for, for, for processing time. I mean, I, my my um, my initial thought as I listen to you speak, Kimberly, and I'm listening really carefully, is this white person, because I can only speak for me, when you say that, my reaction is I would be so worried to say anything about Black culture for fear that it's me being stereotypical and racist. That's my initial reaction. Even even if it's truth, even if it's truth that that, that that happens, I think, unfortunately, there's so much in the, I don't know if it's zeitgeist or the culture or something that like there, I don't know what, what is a story that's been created by a systemically racist society. And I don't know what truth is around narratives that, you know um, people of color are sharing for real right and so that's my work to do I'm not saying anybody should do it for me but that's that's where I sit right now is I I still have work to do because I'd love I'd love to know those stories and those narratives love to know that
4: the comparing them is so fun so just in the conversations that we have that I have with students all the time yeah um, Being curious about what is happening in spaces and looking for ways that things are similar and things aren't. It allows for me to translate, to say Mm -hmm. this is this experience. And as an educator... Here are some of the historic reasons why this shows up in this way, kind of traditionally Mm -hmm. in a Southern African-American experience or in a Midwestern African-American experience. Like we Mm -hmm. can speak regionally sometimes and sometimes not, as you were saying, because it's it is kind of specific to the individual. But Mm -hmm. um, it opens the door for lots of fun conversations and an opportunity to translate and share.
2: Yeah. And if we, I mean, if we don't have those stories, I'm just thinking of us all as educators, how can we invite belonging if we don't know those stories, right? And integrate the experiences of our students of color um, or any, any other um, non-dominant, you know, individual or population. As yes, you look like you were just getting like ready Bell to Hook. share or something.
3: Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I was just—I was just thinking when Kimberly was talking about that and in, in your comment, Carrie. I know that in my friendship w- with Kimberly, there have been, especially working together, there have been in a predominantly white environment, there have been so many moments where, and sometimes I know even from in myself, where I have to do work and I, and I'm in uncomfortable spaces. Even I'll—I'll I'll have we'll have a. I want to ask this question, but I also don't want to put it on you to have to be the right. Like, and but especially if there are moments when we talk about boundary crossing and community and belonging, where you know, if I'm there and I get to be out in the wild with her witnessing the microaggression live, well, then there's that we'll have we've had several unfortunately several conversations about this where it's how can because then you'll find myself in this moment like, well, how do I best support in this moment? And it's also not your job to have to teach me how to best support in this moment. (laughs) but i so you know you find yourself do i um there was one last year i'm trying to get a specific thing so it doesn't sound abstract where uh, a a coworker commented in a public space on your on your hair um i think referred to it as a weave and uh, <laughs> and it was a very uncomfortable moment and i that Kimberly had to handle all on her own, as I think my coworker, one of our friends, and I stood with our mouths open, and afterwards we talked about, you know, what's the best way in a moment like that to support you, do we say something, do we say, and and Kimberly was really generous in that space, I think, I don't want to speak for you, but you have permission, uh, thank you, mm-hmm. um, Just around, you know, she's around having that conversation. And for you, you know, you communicated that that's something that you don't want to have to be the one to always do the educating. And also, we can do that to step aside with that person. So, not doing it in front of you, too, because then Mm -hmm. what ends up happening, the point I'm getting to is what ends up happening is then Kimberly ends up being the one in that moment who both has to educate and caretake the educated when they feel bad or upset about something. Um, I don't know, it's an interesting, when we talk about boundaries, to talk about power dynamics, that's just part of what came to me as we all work to do, we, to do the work. How do we navigate that with transparency and also consideration for how to build that sense of community without, I don't know, further disempowering or further burdening, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm
2: yeah, it, to- it totally does. A couple of seasons ago we um, I got to interview in the leadership season um a woman of color, leader coach, a leadership coach, leading Dei person. And she said because we got into this sort of conversation and she was sharing that she thinks it's great that white people are reading all the books and doing the thing, but she said that this work is relational that you can't, you can't expect to go on this journey in isolation. And so I think as, you know, this, this question that you asked, like, what can, what, how can I show up to support you? Right. It has to be asked at some point. Right. And you have to figure out as the person with the power and privilege, how to ask it in a way that's supportive and not burdensome. Right. That it's both individual, but also collective work that we have to do. And we have to ask other people. Cause I, I'm this resonates with me and Brianne so much because as we've been writing this book, as you can imagine, some of the pieces of the book are, you know, acknowledging power and privilege. And we both are two white women writing this book. And we are very mindful of our positionality. And I just recently um had this really beautiful conversation with a colleague of color asking. Uh, for heard feedback on parts of it. And I had, you know, and I shared it's I'm not I want you to be I want to be clear that I'm not trying to burden you. I've been doing my work and doing the drafts and it's time to include, you know, another really smart set of eyes to to look at this. And it's it's hard, but it's it's important, right, that that those voices be heard and be heard. I don't know that we represent it correctly. Right. <laughs> so. Oh my goodness, I love this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I know we're getting short on time. Um, do we have a few more minutes? I don't know, S and Kimberly, what's your I want to be mindful of your teaching schedule. I'm good. Yeah, we're You're okay. You're okay. Brianne, do you have a few more minutes that we can go? Cause I did want to yeah. get to this. Um I wanted to get this to this final set of questions and maybe we can at some point do a part two. So We've had such a, I think, such a beautiful conversation about belonging and code switching, and everybody's been so generous in sharing examples. You know, we're all educators. We all facilitate workshops and classrooms. And so in thinking about the spaces, the learning spaces that we show up in and knowing that folks are code switching, I guess a a couple of questions it sounds like we've established that sometimes there is good, I'm using quotes, good code switching, right? As Brianne told us. But but when we think about a classroom and I think about in higher ed, we think about syllabi, right? And the sort of all the expectations. And one of the expectations that I think Brianne, you had mentioned to me earlier, that's sort of come under fire is this idea of professionalism. And that's, like that's one exa- that's one of probably a thousand examples. So what can we as educators do to honor and teach good, effective code switching? And what can we as educators do to try to tamp down the need that students might feel to enter these classrooms and code switch in the ways that are harmful in all the ways we've described So I'm like, like brass tacks here. Like, what are things that we can do? Kimberly, I saw, I don't want to put you on the spot, but you were very expressive during that. And I would love to, (laughs) I'd love to know what that's about for you. Oh man.
4: Um so I not too long ago read something and then and I am really bad at like people's names and titles so if it's somebody's work I apologize and you definitely wrote it I did not. Um <laughs> someone's work that was about um white supremacy and per- and the expectation for professionalism like that edict that kind of nebulous set of of guidelines for showing up and um Actually mentioned it, mentioned it to S when I came in all excited about it, because it really helped kind of define what that was for me. So to respond to that, I think that we can look at specific aspects of cultures that have been marginalized or, or othered in some way. So. I mean, like, you know, brass tacks, where there is the expectation for individualism pushed toward collective thinking, mm-hmm. um, where there is the expectation for quiet, orderly, hierarchical inter- interaction. There is the idea of building community and uh, reaching inward and then outward um, when there is the expectation for, like, product driven, performance driven um, uh, showing up in that way, um, we shift to more uh, togetherness and less solo, more choir. Um, so those those are just some like really like right now things that, that you can do in a space, I think that move away from that idea. But most importantly, instead of those blanket things like professionalism, say the things. So if what you want mm-hmm. is, you know, people listen respectfully, then let's define it just like we did at the beginning. So understand that culturally respect looks different. So let's say it out loud. So what do you need to feel respected? Here's what I need. And maybe we can shift from the idea of like respect to we're going to operate in mutual consideration. Um, So kind of nail down the things that we hope to see, and then talk about, what that definition looks like for for all of us and what we need to feel safe and seen and heard. Mm. Yes. I would
3: um tacking onto that because I, I'm right in line with that. I I think that there is a problem with that concept of professionalism. I think that has to get interrogated. I know there's too many times in my own, and I'm a, a recovering rule follower. So that's a code that I can get behind really easily and fall in line with no problem. From a very privileged place, um, but there have been too many times in my professional career where my integrity has—it's it, there's been an, a disalignment between what it takes to be professional and in my integrity. Mm. And whenever that's the space, and professionalism has to win out because that's the that's the dominant narrative of what's needed to survive, then there's a problem, right? So I think that you know I. Uh, not to be, i know I do. I want to be a uh, revolutionary. And I want to say, I hope the new generation of kids overthrows the concept of professionalism to the degree that it is used as a blanket term to kind of in a Skinnerian behavior management sort of way, right? And I do think it's much more about getting to the why of why we behave what we, the way that we do. I wonder even if we hadn't had so much like domineering professionalism placed on our generations if our culture would look different than it does right now where there is a wide rebellion against well decorum mm-hmm. or, and many yeah. other many other things as well which I think if if dealt with more um more intentionally in classroom spaces like Kimberly was saying define the behavior that you're looking for and why, and really get to why that's important, rather than just, you need to act a certain way to survive in the world. Breanne,
5: any thoughts? Yeah, I just love it all. I mean, I I think clear is kind, right? Brene Brown tells us that. So who knows what, what is professionalism? Like if we ask anybody, there's maybe some sense, but like, is there a uniform definition? I don't think so. And really, what are the things? say the things. Like, I really like that you said that because, you know, we teach graduate students, undergrad and grads, and the graduate students are this close to hopping out into the working world, right? Hospitals, schools, clinics, et cetera. They do need to be able to operate in professional settings. Part of that means you show up on time. Part of that means you do the documentation. That means that you communicate in a way, in a manner that is clear and effective and you're able to convey the information about your patient to the receiving provider, right? These are things that are part of your, it's going to make you successful and make you a successful um, employee and clinician, et cetera. Maybe it's that, maybe it's like naming and really clearly defining all those things. Cause I don't think that those things are inherently problematic, particularly when you're placing them in this professional context of a hospital or a school. like There are things that we have to do so that the the train runs, right? Um, But maybe we can be really clear about defining them and sharing why. I mean, that's what I love to do with the undergrads. Like You're going to have to do this. I don't really care if you miss class. What I do care, though, is that you tell me because down the road, if you miss work, it's not cool to just miss work. Everybody understands that things come up. The important thing is that you or a proactive communicator, like that's the thing. So naming that, now I'm not saying act professionally, but like talking about the importance of proactive communication and what does that look like and how can you do it? And, And then when you do it, I'm like, thank you, that was great. I'm sorry, you're not feeling well, moving on, right? Like, so I think, I just like that you're putting words to this and I think this is a lesson that we can take. So kind of avoiding these big umbrella terms that are stigmatizing and not very clear and coming probably from some systemic hierarchy that doesn't it doesn't it's not even effective really it's the things that define that term um, that we have to be really clear about
2: yeah and we've we've been talking about professionalism because I think that's a great example it's such a ambiguous uncertain term probably by design right so we can't really figure out what the game is Um, the other one for me and this is because I grew up in this way is manners like politeness and manners and so moving from Maryland to New England, I learned very quickly that you don't have to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and those things in the New England, they look at you like you have, I don't know, like you don't know what you're doing in New England if you're using manners. So I think, you know, again, it's, it doesn't mean you, you're you not respectful, right? It doesn't mean that you don't honor, you know, and value your elders, so to speak, but it's, it shows up in a different way. And I think it's interesting. It's, it's no, Surprised that we're landing back on clarity and language and translation, because that's really what we're talking about. And I also wrote down um say the thing. I love that, Kimberly, that 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 at the end of the day, it's the say the thing. What what I've learned over my uh, career recently, partly because I got some coaching training, is um community agreements. Um, in coaching, you call it designing relations. So it in the beginning of any first experience with a group of people what do we need in this space to show up and do the work that we need to do together? And you literally name it. And we, Brian and I just did a conference workshop and we wrote on the whiteboard, the things that were said, because the great thing about that a community agreement is not only is it clarify, but now you also have set up accountability for each other. Right. So if, if Kimberly says, um, you know, giving her grace is something she just needs today. And then I, I jump on, you know, Kimberly, Brianne could say, oh, Carrie, remember our community agreement included grace. So it's not even about the person anymore. It's about the a community agreement. So I think that's, you know, another really good way um, that we can show up for each other is this idea of of community agreements. Um, yeah. Okay. They're, they're telling me time. So that means be quiet. Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> all right well we'll have to have we'll have to have a part two. We'll have to, um, part two we'll have to have a part two this was fantastic and I just want to thank Kimberly and S for showing up as yourselves as your true selves um, and sharing with us your experiences your thoughts and your stories and Brian, it's always a pleasure so um, thanks to all Likewise, of you for you. coming all right everybody this has been another episode so of Tell Me This take care
1: so sincere. Mm-hmm. Chosen your last year Some day